What good is sitting alone in your room? Come hear the music play. Life is a cabaret, old chum. Come to the cabaret. Put down the knitting, the book, and the broom. It's time for a holiday. Life is a cabaret, old chum. Come to the cabaret. Come taste the wine. Come hear the band. Come blow your horn. Start celebrating. Waiting, what goods permitting some prophet of doom to wipe every smile away? Life is a cabaret, old chum. So come to the cabaret. Hello and welcome to Broadway Videos. This week on Broadway for Sunday, February twentieth, twenty twenty-two. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia, Michael Portantier, and Jan Simpson. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, Encore Monthly, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael's a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Michael, we have to have a dog update. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. Last week, we, last week you, just, you, you introduced your dog to us. I don't, I don't think I remember her name. Anita. Anita. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so the possibilities are endless. <laughs> they are. Another Anita in Hell's Kitchen. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. I, I'm not going to run down the street singing Anita. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, yeah, we, we uh, featured two uh, dog-related songs last week in honor of Anita, uh, Tomorrow from Annie and um, uh, Times Like This from Aaron's and Flaherty's uh, um, Lucky stiff. Lucky stiff, yeah, yeah. Uh, but then I uh, I posted the link to our podcast on Facebook, and people decided they were going to weigh in with their own dog related songs. And so uh, Kathy Miller Pullman came up with Bark Salona from Company, mm. and ah. uh, <laughs> and seventy six dog bones from the music. <laughs> But but the but the Alex Rybeck was the one who really, you know, was like a dog with a bone. Pardon the, <laughs> the comparison, because he he started and then he couldn't stop. So he so he he came up with the Hound of Music, uh-huh. uh, Spaniel Rose from from Bye Bye Bird Dog. Ah. Um, you've got Pausibilities from It's ah. a Bird. It's really a good. <laughs> OK. All right. Then, of course, there's Fiddler on the Roof, ah. um, The Collars of My Life ah. uh, from Barnum. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, ain't, and then, of course, Ain't Too Proud to Beg. We can't forget that. Ah, one. right. Sure. That's right. But then he came back with Bow Wow Wow, fellas. Look at the old girl now, fellas. <laughs> <laughs> and then as if that wasn't uh-huh. enough, then he ended, Alex ended by saying, well, you know, I think an album of dog oriented show tunes would be a natural project for producer John Yap. Ah, uh-huh. <laughs> so, okay. So that was how he ended, and I think maybe we should leave it there. <laughs> but I really, I really appreciated 
uh, Alex's efforts and, and everyone else's little comments on uh, other doggy songs. So uh, have you told Anita that she's up for an Academy Award? <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah, she'll be so excited. <laughs> yeah, I have to sit there and watch it and so, with some biscuits. <laughs> also with us is Jan Simpson. Uh, Jan is a theater journalist who writes the blog Broadway Me and hosts the Broadway video podcast Stagecraft and all the drama. She has twice served as a Pulitzer Prize juror. Jan, welcome back to This Week on Broadway. I'm delighted to be back. <laughs> we're, so, we're so excited to have you. We were just saying that uh, we haven't had you in the last two years, and I couldn't remember why you haven't really been here in two long. years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but we've been able to hear all your awesome shows uh, right. and, and your discussion with Paula Vogel just last week or t in two weeks ago. And so that's been a really, that, that's been so much fun to listen to those things. I'm it's so excited been, when I get them. It's been so much fun to do. And, I just adore Paula Vogel. I revere, mm -hmm. adore Paula Vogel. She's not only like a terrific writer, she's just such a great person. Mm -hmm. She spent so much of our interview talking about the work of other people that she wanted to promote. I mean, ah. she's, she's just great. Yeah, I was just going to say something similar about her. And isn't she also a teacher? Oh, yeah. 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 I, I'm not surprised because she has that very much that air of her. She must be a great teacher. Yeah. Well, her students have included Lynn Nottage, um, <laughs> Ayad Akhtar, Nilo Cruz, oh. Kiara Alegria Hudes, oh. um, uh, Sarah Rule. Uh, she's a good teacher. Yeah, <laughs> that's uh, quite the list of students. That's uh, really wonderful. And speaking of talking about uh, praising other people's work, we have the 15th uh, birthday for your website, Broadway and Me. Well, it's yes. Been 15 years of writing uh, uh, summer recommendations and <laughs> all the other stuff that we're doing over at broadwayme.com. It's astonishing to me. It just sort of sneaked up on me. Um, I started 15 years ago on Valentine's Day. Huh? And the very first show I wrote about was um, In the Heights when it was um, uh, way over on West mm, 30 something. 37th, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, Street. And so it's been, it's been a great, great ride um, doing Broadway and Me. Really <laughs> Well, uh, it, it was the the opportunity for me to meet you, which was right. really, really wonderful, you know, <laughs> fortunate for me. And I was very excited. For me. <laughs> for me. So uh, let's get into our reviews. First hmm. up for the day, uh, Jan and Michael got over to the new group to see Black No More at the Pershing Square Signature Center. Uh, and so, uh, Jan, why don't you get us started on Black no, Black no More? Uh, I think Michael talked about it maybe a little bit. A little bit, us, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, last week, this is a new musical. It's based on the 1931 Harlem Renaissance novel by uh, George Schuyler, George S. Schuyler. And uh, its premise is um, about a process that turns Black people into white people. Um, it was controversial back in 1931. Um, and I'm not really sure why um, uh, the folks who put the show together, who are really impressive folks, decided to work on this property. Uh, the 
book writer is John Ridley, who people may know as the Oscar winning uh, screenwriter for 12 Years a Slave. And uh, the music is largely by uh, Tariq uh, Trotter, who is known in hip hop circles as Black Thought. And Black Thought is one of the founders of the Grammy-winning group, The Roots. And people who don't follow hip-hop may know The Roots (laughs) because they are the house band on, um, uh, not Jimmy Kimmel, the other Jimmy. Fallon. The Jimmy Jimmy Fallon Fallon show. Yes. Mm -hmm. Tonight Show. Right. They are the the house band on uh, The Tonight Show. Um, This... uh, Musical follows this uh, man, his name is Max, and he decides to undergo this process uh, for two major reasons. One, he's uh, tired of being discriminated against because of his skin color. And the other is that he meets at a Harlem nightclub, uh, this white woman, Uh, who he's very attracted to, and he wants to be able to pursue her. Keep in mind, this is 1930s. And um, he undergoes the treatment. She lives in the South. He goes South to follow her. And when he gets there, he discovers that her father is the head of a white supremacist organization. Um, Max now appears to be a white person and the father recruits Max uh, into the organization and promotes him to become his successor in the organization and marries him off to uh, his daughter. Uh, In the meantime, this process, lots of people are undergoing this process and uh, people in Harlem, uh, some of the uh, pillars of the of of the black community in Harlem are worried because black people are disappearing they're turning into white people <laughs> and um max's friend his good friend goes down to the south to uh persuade him to come back and rally the race um i get a little squishy here cuz the musical gets a little squishy uh uh here Um, it seemed to me, not just to me, but to people sitting around me, this is, um, a new group production at the signature, uh, uh, center, Pershing Square Signature Center on 42nd Street. People sitting around me at the performance I attended were talking to one another and saying, I hear this is the new Hamilton. I hear this is going to be the new Hamilton. And it did seem to me to follow the Hamilton template. Um, There's hip hop uh, music uh, alongside R&B and Broadway show tunes and gospel music. Uh, there's a lot of dancing, uh, this time chore- uh, choreographed by Bill T. Jones. Uh, even the set looked to me like uh, it was kind of like the set of, uh, of, of Hamilton. Um, <laughs> a lot of money has been spent on this production. The chorus is like two dozen people. Um, the, the performers are first-rate name performers, Brandon Victor Dixon 
plays uh, Max. Uh, Lilius White plays um, uh, well, she's modeled on the real life person, Madam C.J. Walker, uh, a beauty entrepreneur um, mm-hmm. in Harlem. Uh, Jennifer Damiano mm-hmm. plays his uh, white object of desire. Efren Sykes plays uh, a friend of his who's loosely based on Langston Hughes, uh, the poet. Uh, Howard McGillum uh, plays the white supremacist father. What's it, it, It's such a unusual role for him. And what's interesting to me is that in the original uh, posting for uh, the cast on uh, the, the Lucille Lortel uh, archive, uh, they haven't yet assigned the roles. They just have the names of the people who are going to perform and uh, McGillan's name isn't there. Walter Bobby's name is hmm. there. And I think he would have made, uh, 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 I could have seen him in the role more easily. Not that Howard McGillan is bad because Howard McGillan isn't bad. So, <laughs> you know, so, so there's that. Did the show work for me? Finally. Um, I don't know. I, it's, it, uh, the book, which I read when I was uh, in college, um, I didn't like. Um, the book is a satire and it makes fun of everyone. It makes fun of the KKK, makes fun of the NAACP. It makes fun of everybody in between. Um, Skyler seems to have been really kind of a sour guy. And uh, I, I didn't like the book then. I started rereading it. I I don't like it now. Ridley has changed a lot. And the biggest thing he's changed is the character of Bunny, who in the book is a guy um, and uh, uh, it's changed to a woman. And it's sort of like what happened with a company. They've changed it from a Y to an I um, ending (laughs) of spelling of her name. Um, she's played really, really um, uh, wonderfully by Tamika Sonia Lawrence. Um, they try to give an uplifting ending uh, to this story. In the book, it does not end well. Um, and I just don't know. I mean, if you look at Hamilton, it made us all feel sort of great. Um this country is for everyone. There's a lot of, you know, feeling let's come together. And it's hard uh, to make uh, a joyous, and that's what they're trying to do, a joyous musical about racism and self-hate. So I, I don't, it was it was entertaining, but I just don't see this um, becoming the big musical that it, that it seems to want to be. Hmm. All right, Michael, what did you think? Mm, I, that is so interesting. And thanks for your perspective, uh, seeing as how you had read the novel, because mm. I did not. And obviously that's so interesting to hear you detail the, uh, the differences. Um, I, I guess I, um, I, I didn't get the impression that they were trying to make it joyous. Um, is that's what you felt the the ultimate takeaway was that that well, they were at the at the end. I think I, I actually have 
on the script on my uh, uh, computer. Okay. And and at the end, they're singing. Uh, the the lyrics are something about um, the future is for us. Um, we'll come together. Uh, You'll never be alone. You'll always have a place to call your own. Um, this kind of, even though the world can be unjust, I'll always be someone whom you can trust with you and me. It's victory. <laughs> uh, the hmm. ending, spoiler alert, but the novel came out in 1931. <laughs> There's a lynching. I mean, it's a very different ending. In the in the book, there's a lynching. Yeah. Oh well. Okay. Yeah. See, that's the kind of thing that's so valuable that you have read it, so you can tell us that. I guess they did try to at least end it on a very different note. But what I meant was, um, they don't shy away from all of the satire before that, the satire and the very dark aspects of it, and uh, the whole assimilation thing, and the and racism, and uh, how how much people should try to assimilate or not. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's all in there. I guess they tried to graft a, a very positive ending onto it after that, and I, I guess you feel that doesn't necessarily follow. Yeah. 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 I can see that. I, I'm so embarrassed that I did not mention Lilius White last week, although I, I really just gave a very cursory uh, mm. pre-review because it had the show hadn't opened yet. But yes, Lilius White is very much in it and she has a couple of showstoppers. I, I thought uh, for me, the the biggest flaw of the piece was that it seemed a little padded, especially in. Uh, the second act. And there seemed to be a lot of numbers, including her numbers uh, that mm-hmm. were great, but were not, they were more divertissement. They didn't mm-hmm. really, uh, they didn't really address the plot. And, and in a play like this, a musical like this, you kind of want the plot to keep going because the plot is so interesting. That's uh, true. So uh, I did want to make that observation, but I, I very, as I said, I, I don't know if you agree, but I really mm-hmm. enjoyed I really enjoyed the score and I can't wait for the album. Hmm. I think that was to me, the biggest point of comparison with Hamilton, the way that they so skillfully meld uh, rap and hip hop and R and B and several other genres of music uh, in, into a a cohesive whole. And I really am. So um, as I mentioned last week, Jen, I, I first became Hmm. of, aware of Tariq Trotter. The first time I'd ever heard of him was when I saw the movie of Tick, Tick, Boom. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I just think he's such a fascinating person. (laughs) Uh, And I'm going to have really have to pay more attention to him in the future. Hmm. Hmm. So uh, I'm looking forward to uh, Tariq Trotter and the rest of the roots getting together on a full fledged Broadway musical. I've been a fan of, uh, the roots and quest love and Tariq and mm. everybody over the years. Um, since, since about 2009 or so they were on Nick, uh, Nickelodeon's Yo Gabba Gabba, which is a children's <laughs> children's show and we used to love it when they were on my daughter and i would sing along and then they just got they grew and grew and grew and we like we 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 grew up with the roots and mm. they were just so wonderful that is uh our 
Our uh, reviews from Michael and Chan on Black No More. Peter's going to see it uh, coming up, and we'll talk about it again after Peter sees it. Next up, uh, Peter, Michael, and I got over to the Winter Garden Theater to watch uh, uh, 76 Dog Bones. <laughs> uh, and uh, Sutton and Hugh uh, laying down their wares over at the Winter Garden. And uh, so, Peter, why don't you get us started on this and tell us what you thought about The Music Man? I liked it quite a bit. I, I will say the only thing I didn't like was the choreography. I didn't think 76 trombones built at all. And um, I did hate in Marion the Librarian that, that um, Harold Hill started tossing books around and got everybody to toss books around uh, because... Um, <laughs> books are precious things and I don't like to see them handled that way. And I don't think Marion would either. And uh, her reaction wasn't strong enough considering what was going on. So I think the tossing of the books, while it looks fun and it makes a good stage picture was a problem. Aside from that, I had a wonderful time. Um, a lot of people said to me who had seen this said, no, you Jackman isn't quite right because he doesn't have the the bite, um, the the sharp menace that um, Robert Preston had. And, you know, I, I the more I watch Robert Preston, the more I think, I would think they'd see through this Sharpie. I think you do need somebody with more charm, and I think Hugh Jackman has that. Also, my God, is he agile. There are two times when he just lifts himself up and... Um, and plunks his gluteus maximus on a platform. And I mean, it's a stunning thing to watch. Um, if you know the movie, Where's Charlie? Ray Bolger does it, and it's amazing there. Well, he does it here twice, and it's phenomenal. So um, I think he's quite wonderful. And um, so too Sutton Foster. By the way, um, maybe everybody has thought of this, but to me, Sutton Foster looks so much like Mary Tyler Moore. That if somebody wants to do a musical version of the Mary Tyler Moore show, <laughs> uh, you have your leading lady already. And also or, a similarity in her speaking voice, come to think of it, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. You know, um, or if Encores wants to do Breakfast at Tiffany's, and of course it won't, um, <laughs> she'd be great for it there too. So, um, so I think she's quite wonderful as well um i really really enjoyed the production um i i found some ironies in it um notice in rock island we have that lyric who's going to patronize a store anymore um well in these days of amazon um uh, i think that's uh, turned out to be somewhat true you know so um you know two things that were in the 2001 revival that i love dearly that aren't here and again, uh, that was Susan Stroman, and she obviously thought of them. And I thought it was really clever when in her production that she had Harold sit down with Marcellus and start saying a pool table and went into you got trouble. He was just talking to him. And he relied on the fact that all these people in Iowa were busy buddies and would listen in on their conversation. I thought that was a really clever move, and I, I missed it here. The other thing I missed that I thought was really funny in the Stroman revival was um, when Amaryllis is playing uh, during the piano lesson song. And as the um, tempo increased, as it does in that song, Amaryllis had to you know, struggle to keep up and play at that rate of speed. So I missed that. <laughs> I will also say I missed, I, I have to say this. Um, the one thing I didn't like about you, Jackman, is he missed a very good uh, point that's in the show when he's first introducing himself to Marion. 
And what happens is uh, she says, Mr. Hill. And he says, ah, ah, ah. And you think he's going to say, please call me Harold. And he says, no, Professor Hill. And uh, you, Jackman, didn't make enough of that moment. I think that's a really clever, clever moment. Um, and it should um, have something there. My, the audience I was with was crazy for it. Um, the entrance applause for him, we knew was going to be great. For her, almost as much, really, a, a scintilla less. Um, not much less than that. So I think that was um, really, really quite, quite quite, quite good. I liked Sutton Foster when um, Amaryllis called her an old maid because she was slightly wounded. So um, we do see a little humanity there that um, I haven't remembered in other um, in other Marians. So I thought that was quite, quite good to uh, show that vulnerability. Um, so um, I, w- I but I would have preferred soft shoe during marrying the librarian, because really, when you think in a library, it has to be soft shoe. You know, you got to be quiet. <laughs> so, um, so I think that's um, really a very important thing as well. I very much like the rest of the cast as well. Um, I certainly thought that um, Jane Howdy Shell and uh, Jefferson Mays made a, a very fine couple. I had heard along the way that Jefferson Mays was uh, chewing a bit of scenery. I didn't see that for a tenth of a second. I thought he was fine. Loved the barbershop quartet. It was so, and the audience loved the barbershop quartet as well. I mean, that's pretty good when you get that very old fashioned music to get tremendous hands, but the audience really appreciated the harmonies and the fact that they were blending so well and they liked the song themselves. Though I did feel, and I could be wrong about this, but I did feel that uh, the audience didn't know that good night ladies uh, done during the pick a little number was actually a song uh, that was written long before the music man. I think they um, mm-hmm. just inferred that that was a Meredith Wilson song. Not that that's a problem, but I, I just got that um, impression. Uh, we do get a real Wells Fargo wagon in there, which is really <laughs> quite nice too. And you know, the other thing you got to say about Harold, you know, it's, it's really quite wonderful how it's, he comes across in this production and in others too, but I really like the fact that he's a mentor to both Winthrop. Well, he's really a surrogate father to Winthrop and, um, but to Tommy Gillis, you know, I, I saw this happen so many times when I was a teacher of high school students. Um, I remember the department had saying, um, give the bad kids to Peter. Um, he'll be fine with them. And, you know, I, it's really true. You get a bad kid and you treat, the bad kid like a human being and it doesn't take long for those kids to turn around to become human beings um i saw it happen time and time again and i love that that's a factor in this show and um i was really very impressed with the way um you jackman really handled that so so nicely and frankly um part of that of course has to do too with tommy gillis who's wonderfully played by gino cosquilela well um <laughs> I'm michael will fix that maybe not really he's really good at that isn't he uh (laughs) so um so uh really quite good um there as well so uh you know the other thing one of the hardest things for an actor to do on stage is to just stand there when somebody else is singing and when you have technically nothing to do and during till there was you when indeed um marion is singing sutton foster is singing um you jackman just has to stand there and listen but boy the expression on his face really shows that, wow, she really means this. Oh, my. Uh. And you can really see the the um, transition from him being just um, a, a slick salesman into somebody who says, wow, I've really affected this woman. And, um, and he really um, humanizes himself right then and there. And so seeing that 
uh, was very, very potent. And I thought that was one of the great strengths of the production. So um, what can I say? I liked it quite a bit. Um, I liked the fact that Harold, uh, I was reminded of a line that Ronald Reagan, of all people, said in The Voice of the Turtle, um, which is somebody says, do you have any talents? And he says, I have a talent for appreciation. And this Harold Till seemed to have that. And um, I, my hat's off to uh, Jackman for being able to do that um, quite, uh, quite nice. The sets um, by uh, Santolo Quasto, well, you know, I, a lot of people have criticized the fact that there's um, a barn that um, serves as a traveler, so to speak. Um, and so much of the show is played in one, meaning very close to the lip of the stage. I find that an asset rather than a liability, frankly. I like when um, performers are right up, um, right close to the lip of the stage. Um, I like the immediacy of it. And, uh, but of course, scenery is being changed in the background. The trees were a little bizarre to me. Um, they're um, mostly um, circles and, um, and they looked out of place to me for, for Iowa, but, but there were a lot of rustic um, backdrops that were um, rather nice. So, um, so that was good. Um, a, a lavish production. Um, and um, um, I know the tickets are terribly expensive. I won't um, argue with that, but uh, <laughs> can I say it's worth all that money? I'm not sure what's worth all that money, but I do think that the music man does deliver a terrific, terrific evening. And I'm so glad I came. Okay. Michael, what did you think? I very much enjoyed it also. Uh, interesting to see it after some very lukewarm reviews. Yeah. Uh, and also uh, so interesting to see Hugh Jackman's performance after that. This is one of those test cases things or um, what's it called uh, uh, case study things where people I mean we were told that all of the first night critics saw the show on the opening night uh, then we discussed that maybe some people had bought additional tickets before that uh, you know so they w could um, think about it a little more and not have to write uh, their reviews within an hour or so. Uh, I don't know how many of them did that, but I was quite fascinated. Some of the uh, reviews of New Jackman's performance described it as very inward. Um, and then others re referred to it as too splashy. Uh, and I was like, well, which is it? <laughs> I thought he was just fine. I thought he was really <laughs> great. I thought his charm that he's so famous for came through 100%. Um, he doesn't uh, have the best singing voice, uh, especially lately. But if there ever is a show where that's not much of a problem, it's this one, because there are mm -hmm. hardly any sustained tones. Mm -hmm. um, the only time that I thought, gee, I wish he, his voice was a little better was actually the, that brief reprise of Till There Was You. Mm -hmm. um, I, I didn't think he sounded very good at that point. Um, but other than that, really, and I... Uh, I mean, I was sitting quite close and he does look kind of old, uh, especially in in very recent years. Uh, it seems he's quite thin. And as we I, I guess we know, <laughs> people, those of us who maybe are a little overweight uh, try to tell ourselves that <laughs> that at least it, it tends to make you look a little younger in terms of facially i've um, been relying on that for years. <laughs> <laughs> and i guess that varies from case to case but in his case he seems quite lean uh and maybe that makes him look 
somewhat older. But I, I, I guess that's my other um, maybe one of my other major reservations on this show is that the ages are really really kind of off for everyone, him and Sutton Foster, and also mostly uh, for Mrs. Peru, uh, played by Marie Mullen, which I'm sorry, but this is going to give more credence to that conspiracy theory uh. <laughs> that, yeah, that Winthrop is actually Marion's son and not her brother, because, uh, you know, Marie Mullen is a wonderful actress, but she looks every bit of 70, at least. I, I, I didn't look up her age, but it doesn't really matter what it is. It matters what she looks. And I, I think she looks 70. And I don't see how this adorable 10 year old child uh <laughs> played so beautifully by Benjamin Pajak could possibly be her son. So I wish, you know, I wish they had gone another way with that. Um, wasn't, uh, what was the production where Deborah Monk played Mrs. Peru? Was that the TV version? Mm. I can't say I remember, I but know. well, anyway, you know, it, it should be, it should be someone, you know, it should be someone who looks like she's about 50. Uh, like Sutton yeah, Foster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm a little surprised at Jerry Zaks because of this. Uh, back in 1992, uh, when he was doing Guys and Dolls, he said, um, I am not going to go the stubby K route when indeed mm. I cast um, that part for Sit Down, You're Rocking the Boat. I just don't want that. I want something completely different that we have never seen before. Similarly speaking, in the 1987 uh, Anything Goes, Sir Evelyn Oakley wasn't played as a fop. Right. Uh, as he said at the time, um, we have to understand why Reno is attracted to him in the first place. So considering those two, I would have thought that he would have uh, put two and two together here and, and said, you know, we need a younger, younger, younger uh, Mrs. Peru. So so the uh, Deborah Monk is in the 2003 movie uh, television yes. production with Matthew Broderick and Kristen Chenoweth as right. Harold Hill and Mary Peru, who are... Matthew and Kristen are contemporaries of Sutton and Hugh, who are 20 years later playing the same ages. <laughs> yeah. So I think, you know, uh, for what it's worth, the ages are all over the place. And, yeah. and you mm -hmm. probably should just kind of forget about that uh, if you want to enjoy the show. And I think you will. Um, uh, Sutton's singing uh, pleased me very much because uh, the only place it didn't please me was <laughs> the end of my white night uh, because that was a full out belt. And I just don't think that that kind of sound is appropriate for the character or the period. Um, uh, but elsewhere, I thought she sounded fine. She, she really does sing most of the show in a, in a low soprano uh, type voice. It's, it's not a raw belt. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's head head voice or above the break anyway. I, I uh, and it does have a soprano quality, even though it's nowhere near as high as Barbara Coker or Shirley Jones. So that pleased me very much, except for the end of My White Night. I thought that was very jarring. And also, um, I loved her uh, her humor that she brought to the show and also her energy. But I she did seem somewhat too modern. Uh, to me uh, in terms of how that character is supposed to be. A, I mean, someone who's supposed to be a, a, a rather rigid um, librarian living in a small Iowa town in 1912. I don't think she would be that outspoken and that 
strong. Uh, and I can see why she wanted to play it that way. But I just, as I say, I don't think it's really good for the period. Somebody referred to her interpretation as thoroughly modern Marion. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think that's that really kind of nails it. So I, I uh, you know, but again, I don't want to be too harsh on her for that because I, I she did what she did to make it her own. And I, as I said, I really enjoy the humor and uh, the energy that she brought to it. Uh, what else? There's a lot of rewritten, not a lot, but a significant number of rewritten lyrics in this show, as you may have heard or read. Um, the, the piece that's gotten the most focus uh, as far as that is Shapoopy, uh, where the entire lyric is is pretty much rewritten to make it more um uh well i guess woke is the term i you know i don't know what mm -hmm. else to say mm -hmm. uh um and but i noticed another one that i don't think anyone else noticed and i wish i could be more specific uh because it went by so quickly that i couldn't get it but i'm almost 100 mm -hmm. sure yep. that uh you did not sing uh ragtime shameless music that'll grab your son your daughter with the arms of a jungle animal instinct um i asked about it on uh facebook and somebody said that it's rewritten uh to have a reference to syncopated frenzy uh rather than jungle animal instinct uh so maybe that's right if if i see the show again or when the album comes out i'm sure there'll be an album i guess we'll have the answer to that question it seemed to me there were extra lyrics in set but was a girl too yes uh at first i thought that they cut out the lyric about hester, hester. exactly me too i have a note on that <laughs> yeah winning one more a and i thought yeah, well figuring... did they did they cut that out because they think that's offensive or because they think no no i think no it's the scarlet letter, letter anymore, anymore. Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah i think that's the reason but then and it, of course we have to talk about the fact that there is that long 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 introduction to my white knight that um hasn't been heard before right and uh well we'll talk about that more in uh when we discuss our musical moment uh, oh okay because yeah it's but thank deal. you but that that is coming we will definitely talk okay. more about that um the uh oh, oh and just one thing what's so brilliant about this uh that lyric change if indeed i'm correct about it in uh, trouble uh made me think of uh something that's really brilliant in that song because while harold hill is decrying ragtime he's singing <laughs> rhythms that have syncopations in them, <laughs> uh, you know, and I think that was absolutely 100 percent on purpose. Uh -huh. And even then, when the when the townspeople start singing, they sing, oh, we got trouble right here in River City. That's that's syncopation. That's ragtime rhythms. Mm -hmm. uh, it's one kind of example. So I think that that's really brilliant. Um, Tommy Gillis, uh in the movie, uh, he is referred to at least twice as the leader of a gang. And I watched the movie again to get this. Um, the mayor says his father is one of them Lithuanian oh, south yeah, of yeah, town. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. yeah. um, they cut that all out. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think that was there on purpose to show that these people are very the, it's a very closed society and these people are very rigid and they don't like outsiders. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, that's just a, a note on that. Um, I agree with Peter about the choreography. I think it was very good in terms of the the steps themselves and the patterns. But 76 trombones is one example of a number that just did not build. Uh, mm -hmm. And if you watch the movie, that that's something that Anna White was absolutely 
brilliant about. Um, so please do watch the movie again. Uh, if you, you know, it's a lot more affordable than seeing, seeing the show, <laughs> yes, yes, but, it is. uh, but I do urge you to see the show. If you, if you get a chance, uh, before leaving, I have to say, uh, I, I I'm so interested this, how can you see a show for 50 years and not notice a tremendous plot hole in it until somebody points it out? What's the huge plot hole in the music man? Well, I don't know if we're thinking of the same thing, but um, what's always bothered me is that um, Marion, after a night's sleep, would say after uh, at the act one curtain, mm. when she's so thrilled to see that little boy come alive after having not been alive for two years. Right. I would think that after a night's sleep, she would say, yeah, but what's going to happen when there's no band? I mean, it, it what's going to happen now? I mean, the kid's going to be more disappointed than he was in the first place. So that's the thing that's always bothered me. Go on. Well, that might be more of a, a character flaw, but no, that's not what I mean. Okay, so Harold Hill, you know, he's going to, create this boys band and he orders these uniforms and he orders these instruments and they arrive. Well, how do they, who pays for them? Oh, I assume the parents paid for them. I mean, we do see him going around. uh, No, no, no. But I mean, no, but he, but if he's going to keep the money, then who paid those companies? Where's the the scam? Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. And <laughs> and even in when they sing, when the townspeople sing about the Wells Fargo wagon wagon coming, they sing it's either prepaid surprise or COD. So those are the two options. Either everything has been paid for already or it's COD. But I don't think they had credit in those days like they have now where you can just you know, put down a credit card and then and then pay for it later on. And also we're told that, yes, Harold has gone around town collecting money for the uniforms and for the instruments. But if he doesn't give that money to the companies, then how did the how did the stuff arrive? So I guess we're just not supposed to think about that. (laughs) Or uh, just for the sake of argument, he charged them ten dollars and the um, uniforms were five dollars. Oh, I guess like the producers. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Right. Like Walmart. (laughs) (laughs) that's the business (laughs) so uh i am going to say that i'm joining the lukewarm reviews okay um you're entitled yeah i (laughs) i i thought that this was a wonderful star vehicle for hugh and sutton but couldn't we have found one that fit them better Mm. Uh, we have some of our listeners who are chiming. Greg Christensen said that she heard that some of the complaints about the keys being lowered for Sutton and uh, Tony Janicki talked about uh, Mike, Mike, Michael, maybe this is the musical moment. The uh, My White Knight uh, had uh, a patter in the beginning and then some new lyrics. Maybe the new lyrics are what we were talking about. That you, They're not you, new lyrics that uh, we will discuss not? later. Yes. Oh, we'll discuss later. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, I, I, I was like, they were perfectly fine, uh, but I was tremendously disappointed in, you know, uh, as Peter mentioned that the ticket prices are sky high. Mm. And I thought that the, uh, scenery was the best summer stock scenery I've seen on Broadway. Uh, and I was like, all these drops had like creases in them, like take out an iron. I was like, <laughs> that I did not notice. That's that always like, bothers me. Uh, uh, and so I, I was like, uh, it, it just was so underwhelming, except for the fact that, you know, 
uh, Hugh Jackman and Sutton Foster are stars. They are huge, huge stars, and people are coming to see them, and it's wonderful to see them on stage, and the ensemble is great, and everything else. But the things that Michael brought up about the ages that really I just couldn't buy into it. It was mm-hmm. it was beyond my edge of willing suspension of disbelief. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and I thought that there were some really really laugh out loud moments. The Far- Wells Fargo wagon, the, the the when it's in the distance coming to town, <laughs> was very funny, and the horse was very funny. Mm-hmm. And Hugh and Sutton are tremendously char- uh, charming. So. Go if you're a fan of Hugh and, uh, Hugh and Sutton or if you're a completist or things like that. But, you know, $700 tickets. Yeah. I, I don't know what to say yeah, about well, that. Where did this price come from? Because when I left the theater, I looked at the um, at the uh, graphic of the tickets and I didn't see anything that was 700 I saw five something. It's, but. Uh, it's, uh, um, it's their premium tickets, but it's direct. It's not the scalper ticket price. It's the direct from... Uh, telecharge or something like that price. I see. Uh, so you they get, don't have that price on the on the um, actual screen of the Winter Garden. Only five hundred. Yeah, only. Only. <laughs> okay. Big quotation marks around that word. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, what happens after Hugh and Sutton? Well, we'll see, won't we? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, I would have, uh, as I said before, I would love to see them in a different star vehicle. Always love to see them. Really wonderful. Same with Michael. I'm not a huge fan of Hugh's voice, but he's so charming on stage. And I think that he's super, super thin because he does so much film and television. Well, film, not really television. Oh, sure, sure. Uh, And, you know, the cameras in film, especially high-def cameras, brutal. <laughs> when 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 they leave, of course, prices will go up because we have to pay for the big paint job over the Winter Garden sign. Because yes, painting over those <laughs> those enormous letters that say "You Jack and Sutton Foster" is going to take a lot of paint. <laughs> All right, so that is the Music Man uh, at the Winter Garden Theater now and forever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, Jan, uh, last week we talked about uh, Prayer for the French Republic at Manhattan Theater Club, but uh, you got a chance to see it, so I'd love to hear what you thought about Prayer for the French Republic. If I rem- I don't remember which of you saw it, but you, you really liked it. Was that it was you, I, Peter? yeah. Yeah, Peter. Well, um, I'm going to... Go right ahead. Meet, I'm, no, I'm going to <laughs> I'm going to meet Peter and raise him. One. Oh, good. <laughs> I think this is a wonderful uh, uh, play, and I think it's. Uh, I think, like a lot of people, I've been, or maybe even more than some people, I've been tentative about going to the theater because of the whole pandemic situation. Um, and there were a couple of shows that I knew were coming in that I really wanted to see. And this was one. Um, and I, you know, you always go, you have your expectations and you're a little worried. And this met and surpassed my expectations. I think it's the best work that Joshua Harmon has done. And I've been a fan of his ever since his play, Bad Jews. Um, the only one I didn't like was Skin Tight. Do you guys remember that one? No, um, which with may a, prove your point. Yeah, it, <laughs> with Adina Menzel. Yeah, well, we won't talk about that. Um, this play, one of the things that I most admire about him 
and particularly in this play, which is a play about Jewish identity. And uh, that's very much in the air right now because, unfortunately, um, and just terribly, of the rise of anti-Semitic incidents around the world, um, including here um, in, in, in the U.S. And Joshua Harmon is very good about taking big issues um, and, and finding that line between the personal and the political. He's also not afraid to lean into being a bit pedantic. Um, he wants you to think about these issues um, and wherever you're coming from, although, you know, there is like no good place to come from um, in terms of anti-Semitism. But what, what, wherever you're thinking about this, he wants you to really wrestle with uh, your thoughts and, and ideas. This play centers around a French family. And in the program notes, he talks about the fact that his own family, uh, his own Jewish family has its roots uh, in France. And France for a long time has taken pride in the fact that it is more tolerant than other places. Uh, in, in, in Europe and maybe uh, in the world. And yet, as the play uh, uh, talks about, there have been outbreaks of anti-Semitism over the centuries, not just over the years, over the centuries um, in France. And this looks at one's family's experience is largely takes place right before the 2017 election when um, Marine Le Pen, um, uh, the leader of uh, the far right uh, group in France, went up against Emmanuel Macron, uh, who is now uh, the president of France. Uh, of, of France. It takes place in 2017. It starts with an incident in which the son of the family is assaulted and beaten up on the street. It raises the question of, is France still a safe place for Jews? Should they stay there? Should they move to Israel? And it juxtaposes this question and their decision against a similar decision that their ancestors, uh, I guess ancestors, uh, had to make, their grandparents had to make uh, right before World War II. And we see both time periods uh, very nicely, I think, um, moved between, because the show is directed by David Cromer, um, who just is such a sensitive and just all around excellent director. It's marvelously uh, acted. Um, I think right now, this, at least in my eyes, would be a, a lead for um, a Pulitzer Prize uh, play for this year. It's, uh, it's, it's just excellent and, and really should be seen. It's running right now through March 13th at Manhattan Theater Club uh, at City Center. I don't know if there's any thought about moving it to Broadway. I think it would play very well on uh, 
Broadway. Um, I went with a, a good friend who is Jewish. And when we walked out, he said to me, um, does this play well uh, if you're not Jewish? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I don't know. I don't know. It played well for me. And um, uh, but as I thought about it, if you are a thinking, feeling person, this play is going to play for you um, regardless of uh, who you are, unless you're some, you know, reprobate anti-Semite person who should <laughs> not be allowed in a theater anywhere. But otherwise, <laughs> for the rest of us, this is just a wonderful, wonderful play and should be seen. One thing I didn't mention last week that I think is really very effective. The family has a visitor and the visitor comes in and she's a young girl. She's going to be going to school there. And she is in the middle of all this chaos when the kid comes in um, bloodied from uh, being attacked and people are arguing and arguing. And what a terrible thing to be a visitor in a home. And you come at the moment of such chaos and horror that everybody's screaming and yelling and has different opinions and you better do this and you got to do that. No, leave them alone. All, all that stuff. Imagine how you would feel if you were a visitor in a home and that was happening. It's one of the great dramatic things in this play. Well, She's our stand-in. Sure. <laughs> She's our stand-in. And so they're able to explain a lot of things uh, to her. Uh, it looks at, you know, not just Jews who are Ashkenazi Jews from um, uh, Eastern Europe or just Europe in general. There are the Ladino Jews who came from Spain after the Inquisition and went into um, Northern Africa. Uh, the father in the home is an Algerian Jew whose family fled Spain and then fled Algeria. And this whole idea of Jews always looking for a, a safe place. Um, if you go, I don't know if you should read before or after. I read after the wonderful program note um, that ha uh, Harmon includes um, in the playbill where he talks about how he came to write this play and the steps he took in in writing it. In many cases, um, uh, Harmon, that character uh, of the visiting cousin from the United States, um, another place that's supposed to be a safe haven for Jews. Um, uh, she is also Harmon, and he talks about the fact that uh, his visiting uh, relatives in France and being exposed uh, to all of this. So she, she serves a lot of roles. All right. So uh, that is Jan's review of Prayer for the French Republic at Manhattan Theatre Club. And that's uh, been extended through March 13th. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Peter, it seems as though you uh, headed into the New England area and caught up with three different shows. Let's start with An Act of God at the Grandview Playhouse in Worcester, Massachusetts. Yeah, this is uh, done by a company called WCLOC. Um, so um, 
I don't know if that means Worcester City Worcester Light County, Opera. <laughs> Worcester County Light Opera. Light Opera Company. Club. Okay. Um, so I didn't know there was a Worcester County. Um, I certainly knew there was a Worcester, Massachusetts, where Foothills Theater used to do uh, quite nice work. Uh, this is a community theater, and uh, longtime listeners know that I'm a big fan of community theater and um, always believe that uh, talent in community theater is really quite terrific. And a lot of people would have had careers had they chosen to go that path. And that is certainly true of Kate Lubelsic, who plays God in an act of God. Yes, Kate, a woman. We have a female God. Years ago, there was a play called God is a Guess What? And the Guess What was a woman. Well, here we have a woman playing it. She's terrific. And <laughs> what's really something, too, is the fact that she has a little Paul Lind in her in the way that she delivers her lines. If you don't know who I mean, watch the movie of Bye Bye Birdie, plays the father. And um, so she's really quite uh, good. Now, the thing is, I was a little worried about this play because God describes herself and has always in this play described himself in the three productions I've seen before this uh, as well. Let's it's a seven letter word that begins with a vowel and ends with a vowel begins with the first vowel ends with the second vowel. And uh, the word uh, contain also contains a long O in it. So um, I was worried about how a Worcester audience um, would take to this play, which is quite out there. David Javerbaum really has a lot of uh, things that will strike people as profane. I dare say we're not going to see this play in many red states. The Worcester audience loved it. They were with it every step of the way. Um, the laughter was flowing like crazy. So I'm going to say that in communities that may be wary of doing this, that you're considering doing this play, um, you might very well find that your audience responds to it as much as, um, as Worcester did. But again, if you're in a red state, I'd be very um, wary of that. But um, also, of course, this is not a one-person show, you may recall. It's easy to think it is, but no. God has two archangels with him, Gabriel and Michael. Uh, Gabriel is played by Eric Gladwin, terrific. Michael played by Eric Butler, a longtime Broadway fan and investor, somebody who really knows the territory and indeed shows that he's good on stage as well. So congratulations to Chuck Grigatis, uh, who directed nicely and um, a really great experience right there in Worcester, Massachusetts. Well, um, since I'm in New England, um, why not also go to uh, Hartford where TheaterWorks um, happens? I love TheaterWorks. Um, I've had wonderful times there. And um, so now they're doing a play that's been around for a little bit called This Bitter Earth. Um, you may know the song by Dinah Washington, um, and you may not. It's going to be one or the other, I guess. But anyway, this this is a play by Harrison David Rivers and um, David Menziabal um, is the director and has done a very nice job in staging it. Two character play. Uh, Tom Holcomb plays um, a white gay man uh, who hooks up with Damien Germain Thompson, a black gay man. Now, the point of the play is that um, Black Lives Matter is a very important component in this play. Um, one of these characters is very much into it goes to the marches, goes to the protests, wouldn't miss it. And that's the white guy. The black guy is more interested in his career. Uh, he's writing a thesis, wants to get his PhD. He wants to be teaching at the university level, so on and so forth. And he's just too busy to get involved. So that's a nice setup. But when you think of it, it can only go in one direction or the other. And 
you wouldn't be surprised which way it wound up. And I don't think you're going to be terribly surprised in the way that it winds up. That said, um, I, while watching it, I did say to myself, well, you know, I guess they're preaching to the converted. However, I'm sure there are people who walk into the theater who aren't converted. And so the play can certainly do a lot of good um, to those people who need to hear these types of messages who it hasn't sunk in yet. And I'm hoping that um, people who come to the theater will indeed um, be converted uh, the sooner the better. So I thought it was um, effective on that level, but again, wonderfully produced a very nice set, you know, and, um, and uh, a, 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 an easy place to get to in Hartford um, right there on Pearl street. So um, um, Robert Giro does a wonderful job there. And this uh, is no exception in terms of uh, really giving it a first class production. So, um, and then from there, the real motivation for the trip, the real motivation for the trip was to go to South Pomfret, Vermont, 262 miles away from New York city um, where I was going to see, I do, I do. Um, now you're talking to somebody who saw the original, I do, I do uh, way back in 1966 uh, during its Boston tryout. So it's not a show that I really need to see again. Ah, but when Christopher Sutton and Lynn Philistine are going to be doing it, I'm going to be there now. Full disclosure, Christopher Sutton was brilliant in my play. God shows up three years ago. And Lynn Philistine was somebody I knew from the Cincinnati Conservatory of Music, where I was critic in residence for so many years. Um, of course, I was wary of the weather. I mean, Vermont in February. I mean, there could be mountains of blissfully snow, but nothing was going to stop me from making the trip. Now, here's an irony. I took a number of CDs with me and was enjoying them during the carefree, sunny ride. And one was Draft the Cat, which has a song called Let's Go in it. And that's the song that was playing when the weather suddenly changed. The snow arrived just as the lyric came, come rain come snow. Let's go. All right. Why doesn't this luck happen to me when I play the lottery? All right. But it was still <laughs> still worth the trouble to see Chris and Lynn, a real husband and wife team, by the way, who are magnificent under the direction of Gary John LaRosa, who's very, very clever director mm -hmm. and who, by the way, wonderfully directed White House Cantata in New Jersey a few years back. And I'm sure many of um, our listeners know on what that is based. So um, a terrific, terrific job. I was really worried about um, yeah, every time I see I do, I'm really worried about a certain uh, lyric in which uh, it's a two character musical and it's about a husband and wife and their uh, relationship uh, from the day they get married to the day that they're leaving the house that they had um, lived in for 50 years. I, I wish that anybody doing a production would project on the back wall the years that's supposed to happen because it starts, I think, in 1905, certainly around the turn of the century. So we are dealing with a couple that isn't, um, well, as Michael said earlier, woke. Um, so uh, there are a lot of um, old values in it. And I think they're easy to take if we really, really, really know that um, indeed we are looking at um, way back when. That said, the set suggested that the wallpaper on the set, et cetera, really suggested that. So that was um, quite good. But um, I still think projections would really help uh, that matter. So the lyric I'm talking about is when uh, Michael is um, feeling his oats when he gets to 40 and feels that uh, he's really something now. And uh, his wife's getting a little older. And as he says, men of 40 go to town, women go to pot. And I, you know, every time I see this show, I fear for that lyric. And it's amazing to me how the women in the audience um, 
either laugh or say, oh, but um, same thing here. This audience did not rebel against it. Um, and um, I, I don't know how I feel about that. There's a part of me that's glad that they're not getting angry at the show because it really is quite a nice show. Very, very good work, of course, by Tom Jones and Harvey Schmidt. Beautiful scores. Very unlike the type of um, properties and uh, sounds that they're used to. It's a real Broadway sound. And, you know, if you, I don't think any cast album, by the way, more poorly represents what the show was on stage than I do. I do because it sounds like a very delicate musical on that original cast album. However, there's a sound system recording of an actual performance and it's a razzmatazz Broadway show. Let me tell you. And the audience responds to it as such. So, um, so the, it's, it's great fun watching so much of it, watching this couple have their ups and downs. Um, but when they realize nobody's perfect and the honeymoon is over and yet they reconcile and um, they live a good long life. Uh, they become parents, which have their own challenges too. Um, they can't wait for the kids to get married. And when the kids get married, they wish that they were still home. So um, a lot of truth. So it's universal. So even though it takes place a million years ago, the fact remains is that there are a lot of universal truths in it that many husbands and wives uh, can relate to. Uh, husbands and husbands and wives and wives for that matter can relate to. Um, but boy, I do think projections on the back wall would really help. So if you're planning a production of I do, I do spend the money. <laughs> okay. Uh, so uh, Michael, you saw a production of ghost light at the producers club. Tell us about this. Oh yeah. I just want to mention it briefly. Unfortunately, it's already over. It was only three or four performances at the producers club. Um, this is a play. It's actually not a new play. I think it goes back at least as far as 2016 um, written by a fellow named David Alford, whom I'm not familiar with, but some of you may know him as an actor. Uh, he says he's best known for portraying Bucky Dawes on the television series, Nashville. Mm -hmm. Uh and so I, I, I didn't watch that show, but uh, you may know him from that. Uh, I don't know how good he is in an actor, but he's a really good playwright. Mm. Um, this is a wonderful play, a uh, three-character play. It's set in an in a empty theater. And what happens is a, a, an actress shows up uh, expecting to rehearse with uh, one of her fellow actors and her director. And it's a creepy, uh, dark theater with a ghost light on the stage for those few of our listeners who may not know what a ghost light is. It's one of those lights, uh, light bulbs on a long standing pole uh, that is called a ghost light because, well, traditionally, uh, I mean, actually, there are a lot of different interpretations on why exactly it's called that, but the superstition is that there are ghosts in the theater and it's meant to keep them company or provide light for the ghosts in the theater. Uh, and so she's there by herself for quite, quite a bit, maybe like 10 minutes. And then uh, her fellow actor shows up and they're quite a contrasting pair because the actress is very, very, seems very serious and very mature. And she's a Brit. And the guy is uh, a real live wire uh, American stereotypical young actor, hothead type. Um, these two characters are played very well by Jacqueline Neidenthal and Spencer Gonzalez. Uh, Spencer, I had seen um, a while ago in a play called the Dorian Corey story that was off Broadway. And I was really impressed 
with him there. And here again, uh, he, um, he reminded me as soon as he came on and started emoting and, and acting out all over the place, I immediately thought of Pale in Burn This. Uh, <laughs> and actually, when I saw him after the show, I, I told him, you have got to read that play if you don't know it, because you, mm. you should play that part. But he was great. And so was uh, Jacqueline Neidenthal. And they had a real chemistry together. And it's a very much um, kind of a almost a modern gloss on waiting for Godot. At least it seems that's what it's going to be, because they're waiting for this director who is not showing up and they can't get in touch with him. So they're not sure what's going on. And at one point, um, uh, Spencer's character says to Jacqueline's character, why do I feel like I want to call you DD? <laughs> and then later on, she refers to him as Gogo. So the, uh, the waiting for Godot stuff is definitely in there. Um, but then I can't give away too much. Um, the, it, there is a third character played by Tyler Joseph Andrews as the director. Uh, and he does show up sort of, but I, I can't tell you any more other than it gets very, very mysterious and very creepy. And, all, you know, all these uh, weird sounds start to be heard and weird things start to happen. And then it kind of builds to a point where something happens and somebody in our audience screamed out loud. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> And she apologized to the audience afterwards. She said, I'm sorry I screamed. But I don't think anyone <laughs> I don't think anyone held it against her because I think we all wanted to scream. It was really <laughs> just very, very well directed by Thomas Galogly, G-A-L-L-O-G-L-Y. Uh, this very, very well written play, really, by David Alford. Uh, I think that any small theater should consider it. Um I haven't checked if it's published. Uh but uh, you know, uh, track it down if you can, because it, it was really, really extremely well done and well acted and well directed and well written. And isn't it great when you go see uh, a, a play in a in a well <laughs> in a very unprepossessing theater like the Producers Club, very tiny unprepossessing theater, and it's really excellent across the board, especially when the writing is so good. Uh, you know, I, I guess I always think that the writing is the hardest part. Uh, not that directing and, and acting are easy, but I, I think that we have fewer great writers maybe than people in the other, those other disciplines. So to see something that's so well-written to begin with, and then so well done, uh, I was very, very impressed. And I'm only sorry it didn't run longer, so more of you can't catch it. Mm. <laughs> All right. So um, the last review of the morning, Jan, you saw Space Dogs. And given that uh, <laughs> our dog theme is coming out in this episode, <laughs> what did you think about this MCC uh, production? Well, I'm going to be honest. I didn't want to go. Um, I... I'm not. A Are, pet you a cat person? Person? Are you a cat person? Are you a cat? I'm not a cat no. person. No, she had to clean her bathroom tile. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Don't at me. Don't at me. But I'm. I'm not a pet. A pet person and a two man rock musical about Russian space dogs just didn't seem to have my name on it. Um. So, but when I got there, um. 
it was it was charming. It was charming, <laughs> entertaining, and I, I I'm I'm clearly not the demographic for it, except that. Um, when they talked about the first Sputnik, I looked around the audience and realized uh, I might have been the only person uh, in that audience alive yeah, when yeah. Sputnik um, went up. Uh, it was a it was a young audience. Um, I was surrounded by people who seemed to be in their twenties, um, which is always great to see in the theater. They were loving it, having a really good time. Um, the two uh, actors, uh, Nick Blaymore and Van, I'm blanking on his last name, um, that, which is terrible because there are only two actors, but um, <laughs> they were both they were both charming. Uh, it was a fun show. Um, uh, not again at the end, not a not a me show, but it was <laughs> it was fun. It was fun. Much more fun than I expected. Um, Van Hughes. Van Hughes. Sorry, thank you. Sorry, Van. Um, but but uh, yeah, it was it was it was a fun uh, uh, ninety minutes, and I did learn something um, about the Russian space program. <laughs> so there. <laughs> All right, and finally, this morning to wrap up, Michael, you found a gem on YouTube for us. Oh, yeah. Go to YouTube and look up Macbeth with Ian McKellen and Judy Dench. This is a 1979, uh, I guess, British TV version of a RSC production uh, directed by Trevor Nunn uh, and produced by Thames Television. Uh, and it's got those two as the Macbeths and also it's got Roger Reese as Malcolm. And the rest of the cast is pretty neat as well. A very minimalist production, uh, but very, very gripping, as you can imagine, um, that it would be worth seeing if only for Ian McKellen, Judy Dench. But I think it's well done aside from that, directed by Philip Casson, C-A-S-S-O-N. And it is complete on YouTube. Uh, it's not in high def, uh, but it's in pretty good quality. Uh, so check that out. Absolutely free. Okay, so before we wrap up for today, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to an app, app, us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to get us. iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to find a podcast, you'll find Broadway Radio's offerings. Uh, for a transcript of this episode or any other episode on uh, Broadway Radio's uh, shows, you can email transcripts at broadwayradio.com and let us know the episode name that you'd like a transcript for, and we'll uh, send you back a uh, Microsoft Word document of that. Contact information for Peter, from Michael, for Jan, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we talked about today. I threw in... Uh, the uh, roots from Yo Gabba Gabba wanted singing one of my favorite, favorite songs called <laughs> Lovely Love My Family uh, that we used to sing all the time in my in my house. In fact, uh, right after we're done here, I'm going to go down and uh, torture my 14-year-old daughter with it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and also, I have a link to the Macbeth uh, in here. Are we jinxed now? We're not in a theater. So no, no I think we're, we're safe. Okay. We're, we're okay. safe here. If you're listening to us in a theater, sorry, turn around three times and spit or something like that, whatever that is. <laughs> 
All right. So uh, before we get on to the musical moment, Peter, what do we have in last week's trivia? What do these shows have in common? Annie Get Your Gun, The Chairs, Farinelli and the King, Hallelujah Baby, The Wizard of Oz, The Ziegfeld Follies of 1936, The Student Gypsy, or The Prince of Liedekranz, and The Persecution and Assassination of Jean-Paul Marat is performed by the inmates of the Asylum of Charenton under the direction of the Marquis de Sade. Well, each of these shows has the name of a musical within it. I purposely put in four shows that were easy to discern so people could glean the concept. Annie and Annie Get Your Gun, Follies and the Ziegfeld Follies, Gypsy and the Student Gypsy, The Wiz and the Wizard of Oz. A bit tougher, I'll admit, were Hallelujah Baby, which includes Baby. A bit tougher still was Hair, which is in the chairs. (laughs) Josh Israel got those. But instead of including the other two, which were the murderously hard ones, he simply wrote, etc., no 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 josh with me it's all or nothing is it all or nothing with you etc etc what is this the king and i get those other two and we'll talk and josh did he got him he noticed that ari the musical version of exodus could be found in farinelli and the king and most murderously of all rent was in that long title, the Marat Sad play in Charenton. For the, he was the only one to get it, but for the third week in a row, Josh was the first to answer. Do I feel that someone with the initials TJ is starting to worry? Do those initials mean terribly jealous? Well, we shall see. <clears throat> this week's question, a character in an 80s musical estimated that a 60s musical would run at least 7,434 performances. Explain how that could be possible. Okay. If you can explain that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, what do we have in this week's musical moment? Well, our opening music was the title song from Cabaret as performed by Liza Minnelli for the 1972 film version, which I was lucky enough to see a screening of it this past Monday at the Walter Reed Theater, because how scary is this? That movie is 50 years old. I know. (laughs) And I went with my friend, Kevin McInerney, who we we spoke yesterday, and he said, I'm still getting over the fact that that movie is 50 years old. (laughs) But, you know, it's one of the greats. It won lots of Academy Awards and almost certainly would have won Best Picture had it not opened the same year as The Godfather. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if you have not seen it, uh, please see it. It is very different from the play mm-hmm. the the stage version of cabaret but we hear rumblings that you uh, i'm sorry you chapman <laughs> that bradley cooper uh may be remaking uh doing a remake of cabaret and if so uh one would hope that maybe he'll go back to the original script by joe masteroff which i personally feel that both the original script and the uh, screenplay, uh, which is credited to J. Presson Allen, mm-hmm. uh, but apparently was also written largely by Hugh Wheeler. Um, I think they're both good, uh, but they, they're very different. Uh, and so w- with a different set of supporting characters aside from everything else. Uh, so I think it would be great to have movies of both versions, and we'll see if that happens. Our closing music is... Um, 
is my white knight. But this, I, I'm, I have to say, I'm surprised that so many people don't know the history of this version of the song that's being performed in the current Broadway production by Sutton Foster because. Uh, Oh, Barbara Cook, right? Yeah, Barbara Cook recorded right. it. No, I remember that. Yeah. In uh for her Carnegie Hall album in 1975. And uh you know, explaining that this was this was the much longer and quite different original concept of the song, which begins with a very long extended patter section. Uh that is quite similar to uh, some of the stuff that's sung by Harold Hill in the show, uh, I guess, to show that these two characters are more similar than they realize. And weren't uh, they supposed to be done in tandem with uh, Sad But Wiser Girl? Well, I heard that also. But, yeah. you know, of course, famously, uh, the, the climax of the Music Man uh, is arguably when we realize that 76 trombones mm -hmm. and uh, Good Night, My Someone are mm -hmm. the same melody. Mm -hmm. So there, we've already, uh, you know, that already mm -hmm. shows us mm -hmm. that these two mm -hmm. characters are, yeah. are similar. And so I don't think we needed something else. And that's probably why Meredith Wilson wound up rewriting it. But not only did Barbara Cook um, record it for this album in 1975, this live album that was recorded at, at Carnegie Hall, but I'm pretty sure that she sang uh, the this version of it in one of her much later shows on uh, either at Lincoln Center or on Broadway. Does anyone recall this or am I just I don't know. Yeah. No. Well, anyway, regardless, even if she didn't, uh, she did record it in 75. So um, that is where it comes from. And I think it's word for word uh, what Sutton Foster is now singing. And arguably it was changed because uh, that patter section, that long patter section uh, is more conducive uh, to Sutton's range and her voice than the soprano flights, the operatic soprano flights of My White Knight as originally written uh, in the original key. <laughs> so that is our closing musical moment of Barbara Cook from 1975, uh, showing us what was originally planned for that slot and what has now wound up, uh, you know, uh, back on Broadway in 2022. All right. With that, wrapping it up, I want to thank everybody for listening to This Week on Broadway. On behalf of Peter Felicia, Michael Portantier, and Jan Simpson, this is James Marino saying thanks so much. Have a great week. Bye. 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 All I want is a plain man, a modest man, a quiet man, a straightforward and honest man with habits that do not exclude the occasional reading of a book. I do not yearn for, nor do I wait Any handsome hand-kissing wine-tasting silk pillow hooker smoker No world traveler in fact or fancy, no show-off No clothes horse, he need not necessarily be in uniform I await no clean-cut weather-beaten square-rigged white duck pants and tennis shoes No plume hat, no splendid insignia Either of me or anybody else. No Chautauqua advance agent, no vaudevillian, no depot telegraph.
photographer, I'm not dazzled over any such a kind of fascinating flame. All I want is a plain man, a modest man, a quiet man, a straightforward and honest man to sit with me in a cottage somewhere in the state of Iowa and listen with a smile to a poem or a song. That is neither a five-line limerick about St. Peter and a man from Duluth or a sing-song lament of a purple cow and not every day but just occasionally we could walk down by the meadow in the twilight sprinkled dew My white night can be blacksmith Well, dig a clerk, a king. All I want is a plain man, a modest man, a quiet man, a straightforward and honest man with habits that do not necessarily include the chewing of snuff or exploding root beer in the cellar every June. And I would like him to be more interested in me. He is in himself and more interested in us than in me. And if occasionally he'd ponder what makes Shakespeare and Beethoven great, him I could love. I could love till I die.